it's not worth bringing great execution to bear unless you have the right strategy. But strategy is absolutely pointless if you don't build culture and learn how to execute every single day. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Neither a trained data scientist nor a clinician, Scott Barkley's been working at the intersection of health and technology since way before it was cool. He's journeyed down the data stream from CVS to Startup Whisperer to Venture Capitalist, always searching for ways to combine information and empathy. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, David. Yes, Lisa? I think it's so interesting that Scott has really dedicated his career now uh, to that technology and data and all of that without a formal tech or science education, but more of a liberal arts education. You kind of went down the other path, right? You have much more of a, of a science and tech well, education. Well, I mean, I mean it was think? in the context of, I'm actually a huge believer in sort of the liberal arts education as, you know, as, as sort of like as, as Bart Giamatti would write about it. Um, and we can include a link to that. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think that what you particularly major, I mean, I would describe it as it was definitely a liberal arts education with lots of exposure to all sorts of things. But I don't think what people major in is necessarily predictive of anything. I mean, mm-hmm. I think even on our show, right. we've had so many guests who've had such a, a, a range of diverse backgrounds. And um, I, in, in some sense, I almost think that the more you're able to bring, you know, to to, 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 particularly in college, to study what you're interested in. I almost find it a little bit depressing that people find themselves on this exact track where Early if channeling. I want to do something imagined, I want to do 30 years down the stream, I have to be on this exact course and do it in this exact way. And therefore, I have to major in this. If you're passionate about it, for sure. But if you're doing it as sort of just as, as sort of an obligatory means to an end, it kind of seems like a depressing waste of college. Well, I feel better now because you know my background. Um, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I, I think you have the coolest background with the journalism. Yeah, well, it's uh, sort of interesting now. It makes me want to do it more and more. Anyways, back to Scott. He says that if he ever writes his memoirs, it'll be about how to learn to be a parent while going to business school in a remote French village. But it probably should be about how he started down the road from history to high finance until he took a hard ride at the intersection of technology and health. Today, Scott is a partner at Venture Fund Data Collective, though neither scientist nor data nor clinician. And yet he says his role today is to find the best use case for using data to empathetically advance the patient experience. Scott, welcome to Tectonics. We're really glad to have you on today. Hey, guys. It's an honor to be here. And with a tip of the hat to Twain, the, the quality of guests that precede me are such that my only concern is somehow you let me into the party. So thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, we'll disabuse you of that quickly. <laughs> All right, that's the members only jacket joke. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, so Scott, I know you started out being focused more on being an athlete than getting an education, but your football career was cut short, and you started to change your thinking about that. What? Tell us your story. How did education be take over football for you? You know, I think some of my best decisions in life have been where I came at this intersection of imperfect information, and I knew I was naive and just asked like the best common sense questions of myself that I could. And so the story I would tell you is I got a presidential waiver uh, to go to West Point. And in my small town, which at the time I thought was really normal and just this wonderful middle-class place um, today, it's quite uh, beset by 20% unemployment in a land of 3% unemployment in this country. Um, And so uh, 
the, the, the community was quite excited that I got into West Point, and it was that senior year in high school period. And the question I kept asking myself was, well, why do people go to college? And when do you think about a career? And I just came to this conclusion of, I haven't even learned how to learn yet. So I think I'm supposed to go somewhere where I can just break down the barriers of how much I don't know and try to enjoy doing it. You had the presence of mind to think that in high school. I'm like, when I think about my like adolescent hormone addled mind, I I, I don't think I ever thought of anything that coherent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, uh, up until very shortly before that, I was 10 years into thinking I was going to play. The question was, was I going to play second base or shortstop for the Braves? Ah, uh, (laughs) Excellent. I only started to intentionally do things like read books, what I think now looking back relatively late. And so having, you know, wet my thirst, it was subways. It was healthy to, to come to something a little bit later. Sometimes you appreciate it. And in this case it was, Oh, I'm only just starting to learn how to learn. I want to be very careful about, the trajectory. And to be clear, West Point is um, this phenomenal place. I have this tremendous respect of it. And having chosen not to go there, what I built, what I'd come to the conclusion was, it's a place that breaks the individual down uh, almost to a breaking point and then builds them back up in a certain way. And so I didn't go, honestly, out of an almost type of ego, which was if I just read the best thinkers in history, and if I just studied and sublimated myself to people who know more than myself, that I actually would have the ego to rebuild um, you know, who I should be. No, there's a lot of folly in that argument. Uh, but as far as wanting to learn how to learn, I think that was helpful. So your parents, the, I think it's interesting who your parents were. I mean, your your mom was the first female engineer at Auburn University, first female pilot in the state of Florida. Wow. Which is, you know, really pretty impressive. Your father operated a styrofoam factory, so a manufacturing guy. You know, what were the expectations that they had of you, you know, were they role models for you? I know you worked in the styrofoam factory. What is it that you learned in that whole experience that you take with you today, keep with you today? Well, now we have to pause and tell a short story. So once I did start to read, I thought the paramount of life would to be, be quoted in the New York Times or even higher to write an op-ed the New York Times would, would accept. So David, you've already been there. Yeah, it's all downhill <laughs> since then. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I've since realized that actually most of the time you're quoted in the paper, it's often not for the right reasons. And so I know that my family doesn't quite understand the problems I work on, uh, and I don't know if they'll listen to this. But if they do, I want to honor that um, my mom and my dad separated when I was relatively young in life, and I was able to grow up in some ways exceptionally independent, but in other ways having uh, two great dads. Uh, So I grew up working in one of my dad's uh, styrofoam plant from as early as as it was legal. Um, well, I also grew up appreciating, um, you know, what my other dad was doing, which was uh, predominantly in insurance and, and auto. Um, I got away from the question, though. You did. So what did you learn working in that styrofoam factory that, that you keep with you today in your work? Oh, um, very simple. It's like the integrity of just valuing hard work in whatever in whatever place you find it. Like the the ability to see people who give a full day's work even though or despite whatever is going on in their lives. And this is an environment uh, in the summertime, it's usually 100, 110 degrees. So it's really like no shading away. There's no hiding from uh, the hard work. There's no like, oh, I'll take that little job sitting over in the nice air conditioned room. Everybody there is gonna work hard. And if you don't, you know, they're gonna, you're not gonna be there more than a couple of days. 
So just learning how to work around people of diversity where everyone is going to have to work really hard. Are you still picking those little styrofoam balls off yourself? Because they're really hard to get rid of. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I I spent so much of my time there thinking um, that I was working for a good business. And I thought, well, even if we were just making widgets, isn't it worthwhile, you know, providing employment in this town, the value of a hard day's work? Most of this was for uh, furniture and high-end clock packaging and things like that. And I came over time to realize that styrofoam is net, net a negative. At the time, I thought it had such wonderful capacities, particularly around um, insulation and not overusing heat, that I thought it was agnostic. We, I think we, I think the jury is pretty much in that styrofoam is net, net bad. <laughs> and you see, Lee, so Lee, I'm such a lab nerd. My big association with styrofoam was when you were in lab and you had like some chloroform, um, chloroform which you used to extract DNA. You, if you drip it on styrofoam, it like melts it. So it's like the coolest thing to watch where you like you drip it around and the whole styrofoam test tube holder just disintegrates in Dude, front of you. Dude, you need a hobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And lab stuff. This was a, and then there was the Eppendorf uh, um, uh, dry ice bombs. But um, <laughs> all right. So so um, so you, so what did you do after um, after college? So my jumping off point was a quasi-militaristic liberal arts education in the sense that I believed deeply that it should be broad and it should include math and science and physics as well as the broader liberal arts and that those should not be immune to science, but also that I couldn't believe that uh, mankind had evolved in a way that I could go and do this for four years and darn it, I wasn't going to worry about a job. Um, And so as that fourth year comes around at UVA, uh, it turns out I realized I was going to need to work, particularly since I wanted to marry the girlfriend that I had had found in college. And um, I thought, oh, everyone who looks like me, they either go to you know some highfalutin law school or they go into consulting. Um, but the one thing along the way of, of being broad was I thought it was really worth studying value, both how it's created and how people measure it and all the ways in which they don't. And... Uh, I thought, I thought, oh, well, an early investment banking analyst, they just do, they become valuation experts. That is both not true and it is true. But what I thought would be really fun would be to show up and try to show up with, you know, the top bulge back in investment banking firms and try to get a job. So half of them totally ignored me. Half of them gave me an interview. I think some of those, they thought, well, it'll be a long day of all these superstars at UVA, so we'll have someone to entertain us. <laughs> but and actually, in a number of cases, we had a legitimate conversation which usually was around the deep philosophy of value, you know, various questions of variables into value investing. And so I, you know, I did at least trick a couple of them. And I joined this wonderful, like aggressive West Coast investment bank, just as it was about to go through a lot of change. Uh, So my answer is I went into investment banking. I always had an angle on valuation. And the other part of my story was just one of, um, if you're young and hungry and what you need is time and experience, joining the environment of chaos, in some cases, I might argue, might have more learning than joining Goldman. Well, you said that at Montgomery Securities, where you did go, the tw- you got to be the 23-year-old rural white boy teaching the British how to do private equity deals. That must have been quite an experience. Wow. Well, yeah, there was, um, there was definitely some training and some steps before that. And amidst that chaos of Montgomery becoming Nations Bank and the Bank of America, I worked under this you know, really large, professional, excellent team uh, that sat on the trading floor in San Francisco uh, building a, a broad desk of equity capital markets. And then two of us got to go start that desk in London when we overnight, because of some M&A activity, found ourselves with a large number of debt bankers and none having actually ever done any equity deals before. So, yes, 
Uh, that was an experience that I got to have. Uh, my main recommendation from it was that if you're an expat and you're going to go to London, um, go there only for four or five weeks and then keep extending it because then they extend corporate housing versus paying London prices. But the real lesson was one of, um, you know, this 23-year-old uh, smart-ass white boy American showing up with people with a significant history and Rolodex of how European markets should work and showing up and helping an entire debt bank start to do a lot of equity deals. It was a, um, it was an experience in not acting like you know more than you do, and yet also being relentless that there are certain things we'll have to get done, and so let's just find a way to do it. And then you went also in Europe to business school in Switzerland. Why there? What was the, what was the attraction of the, uh, the foreign experience for you? Well, this is one where you, you have to take me as genuine that both things are true. Um, I went to NCAD, uh and uh, Fontainebleau outside Paris, and there were two things. One was that my wife was a diversity recruiter um, for a global investment bank, so she knew how all this MBA stuff worked. She was always suspicious. She kind of knew I was going to want to do that. And she did not want to, as we were starting a family, go somewhere for a year, have to go somewhere else for the summer, go somewhere else for a year. So I said, well, that's okay, because I don't want to study around people that look like me anyway. And the best two schools in Europe, you go for this really intense 12, 14 months. Uh, one is in Switzerland, and one is in Seattle. And my thinking was, well, we're definitely going to go to Seattle. I just don't know if they'll ever, you know, like how long or what tricks I'll have to do to finally get in. And so I had applied to Seattle. It's in Singapore and Fontainebleau, France. And I got a phone call um, well before, like I had applied for you know, 2005. I got a phone call on a Friday afternoon saying, um, well, uh, you're very young for our class, uh, and we start next Friday, but we've had a, a last-minute dropout, and can we have this conversation in three languages, and can you be here on Monday morning? Um, and we had at that point, you know, I think a three-week-old. And so hence the... The flippant remark of, if I ever write a memoir, I'll start with the novella of that year of picking up on a moment's notice, having a brand new newborn child living in a very rural village in France because there's no housing anywhere close to the school and saying, oh, that's a good time to figure out, you know, how we should be uh, partners in parenting for the first time. So what was the, the tr- what was the transition from that world of finance to the world of healthcare? How did you make that bridge? Because I know you went, you know, to CVS uh, sometime after, you know, you graduated from from business school, but you had a few steps along the way. But it sounds like the CVS was with uh, related to uh, BCG, where um... yeah. So what? But what was it that kind of made that that transition for you? I got yeah, I've gone from NCI to Boston Consulting Group, and that's just a, a wonderful organization. But I, at that point, was already centering on. What I really believe in is how you lead small teams against hard, complicated problems. And I started to settle into, I really thought there were some interesting problems in retail and the supply chain, but I'm much more like a minor league economist. I thought healthcare and its dysfunctions was more interesting. I just said, you know, I'm not a healthcare administrator. I'm not a clinician. I don't know anything. And this is where one of those, that angle of being just naive and just confident enough to say, well, I don't know anything about healthcare really but I'm pretty sure that in all the ways in which it will change, the pharmacist isn't going anywhere. And then as I would dig deeper, I would realize there were very few people that looked like me or had my background who said, I want to jump in operationally alongside an organization that thinks about scale and pharmacy and thinks about the, you know, the hard questions of how healthcare would change. And in some ways, that was really naive. Like if you go to the first four projects I did inside CVS, it would just be hardcore 
transformation projects around operations or supply chain. And then sure enough, um, because I was part of a special team with some really special execution leaders, I got to increasingly walk on that journey alongside the pharmacist. And that was for me um, really insightful and a, and a very interesting initial little portal to lots of things in healthcare. So that was around 2008, 2007, 2009, that I went to CBS thing, right? in 2000, January 2005. And by the end of 2006, um, I was on a team that went from running store operations to combining most of what would be store operations in the office of the CIO, because so much of it was becoming around data and technology. And all that became all a project that put me alongside the pharmacist uh, in automation and robots and in data. So let's put that story on pause for a minute. But I'm curious, if you think back to 2005 and flash forward to now, now, you know, 13 years later, do you, the, where the collision of data and healthcare has reached a fever pitch, the, the discussion and the, de- the development, the entrepreneurship and all, you know, what, the anxiety could I you have, have seen that coming? Or um, was that a surprise to you? It's when you see something and you have such great confidence and you know the world will catch up to your viewpoint that it is important. And the question is, you only have a certain amount of time before it's crowded to do something special. Um, So probably some of the earliest instances where I realized I actually should consider going earlier and earlier in my thinking of where and how you create value and how you pull these teams together was very early on I could see that the notion of the patient journey would need to change, that the fact that we didn't move data, that we didn't coordinate care, that value-based care was in some ways something that had been talked about for 15 or 20 years, and it would still take a long time to get there. So, and in, and in particular, I walked into some specific small problems that it just was obvious to me and to others that they would work differently in the future, and yet we live in a world in which that wasn't true. So, very early in my time there, I had got internal insight into, um, you know, only in a, like a room you can go into that's locked and has lawyers present, you know, a view of errors that are made when the prescription is faxed, when it's handwritten, and when it's called in. And at the same time, that you could send the prescription electronically, that, that w- it w- really wasn't a technology problem. That actually had occurred for five or ten years. It just, there was no network, there no set of standards, the use case was broken. But when you saw the rates of errors for no other reason, you come to the conclusion of, oh, well, we're going to have to, this will all have to be digital. And then also leads to a point, which is in healthcare, you seldom can come across a problem. You can't find a good analog. Um, So for example, in lots of things around prescription drugs, there's lots of equivalency to the 1980s. And when we finally had electronic racketeering laws in which it actually started to move the banking system to more digital format, and it turns out you catch a lot more fraud when you have it digitally. Um, we saw a lot of analogs like that as we started to do things digitally. Wow, that's that's really, really interesting. Um, so I'm really interested in, the, in your transition from, so you, it sounds like basically you were part of a system, you were part of you know CVS, you sort of had a sense of, wow, these are some really significant emerging problems that the future, future folks are going to have to address. How did you go from that side of it to being the one who's either addressing it or at least investing in those who are? How did you make that transition? So one of the things I learned in life was that it's not worth bringing great execution to bear unless you have the right strategy. But strategy is absolutely pointless if you don't build culture and learn how to execute every single day. And so 
finding myself in that culture, learning from amazing leaders in that culture, I then said, well, that being true and thinking I've now learned some of these lessons, when in doubt, I'm going to err towards working on things that they don't think are important or are still minimalist over to the side that I think uh, entail little seeds of things that will be much more important in the future. And in particular, there was this inflection point where these really amazing people that I respect were going to need to rebuild the core system of the pharmacy. And I could not find a way to work on that without saying, I'm going to have to just commit to being here for five years. And at the end of it, I will be a world-class pharmacy systems expert. And instead, what I volunteered, I just ran around taking every project I could that said, well, while we're building the core system, let's ask questions around, well, what, how will we move data in the future? And, oh, as we buy something like a minute clinic, how can we combine data from the clinic and how we're touching the patient from a pharmacy perspective to do more innovative things and, and appropriate things like, hey, let's start to truly move data in a, um, in a neutral, scalable way so that when they've gone to our minute clinic, we can truly and honestly say, you press one button and that prescription can show up in a Walgreens down the street. That's fine. That these, that these electronic networks could start to enable a neutrality and a fairness that Otherwise, people would assume oligopolies are doing certain things. Yeah, I know that whole idea of that that interoperability and the data commons and that that thrust of open systems was what ultimately I think took you out of CVS, right? I mean, you wanted to do something bigger and broader than what you could do with SureScripts and the other work you were doing. Right, my CVS. career has been a series of hourglasses where you get this really great breadth, and then you do some things really specifically. So I'm into doing a number of what I thought were transformation projects. I was handed this, look, try to fix this use case around e-prescribing. You know, you and others. E-prescribing is, a, is an ecosystem. Uh, but there's a period where we came to the conclusion that e-prescribing should scale and sat on what was a, a, essentially the de facto board of SureScripts, which was the pharmacy e-prescribing network. But I just happened to work at CVS, which then acquired Caremark, and suddenly I was the internal owner of two competing networks that were just trying to kill each other, both of which were hemorrhaging cash and had no idea how to create virality and network effects. So sitting at CVS, I got to help merge those two previous dysfunctional networks, build one central network. It still had no volume, but build one clean central network. We hired a real CEO. During that time, I was running an e-prescribing company that we had from the orphan PBM side, this really neat late 90s entrepreneurial team, uh, which was now, you know, three or four generations into like basically spaghetti code. And so it was just this, this period of, while wearing a strategic lens for CVS, it was a, we've got to find a way to scale the e-prescription. And very quickly, most of my thinking was in how do we build better networks that are intelligent? And then I started to ask questions others weren't asking, like, and could you use that network to move all types of freemium data between appropriate, secure HIPAA entities and the main intellectual question I kept coming to was, and if we could just start to move lots of pieces of data appropriately, why would you not get it to the end node of a network and compute on it? And think of all the use cases you would do. Now, when I use that language, it might sound like I'm getting fancy, but it's because every single day I would see really basic things not being done. Like if you just give a set of medications and lab results, you can infer with great probabilities very specific things and have a more intelligent conversation at the pharmacist consultation counter. And we knew this in 2007. I believe there's really great evidence on it from 2009. And yet at the majority of pharmacy counters in 2018, 
I would say we mostly still do not do that. No, I don't think we do it at all. That's in, that's so interesting about the importance of even low-hanging fruit and something that you're saying should be just a slam dunk, not AI, not anything, just some very basic, um, you know, j- 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 you know, just sort of just some very basic bringing data together seems still so so mm-hmm. challenging. Mm-hmm. As an investor at a firm that is very deep in AI and deep learning, I, I can strongly say I believe in kind of what's the minimum viable data science necessary. You know, ele- elegance is sometimes what is the simplest thing that most clearly solves a problem. Um, so in a couple of things we're doing around deep learning, it's because, oh, that, that unearths or, or, or goes through an edge that you could not have done otherwise. Whereas you got to imagine, we see a tremendous number of presentations where they are dressed up in not only buzzword bingo, but even some actual people doing deep learning against a problem where the question might be, well, couldn't you just do a regression? So we're, we're definitely not into, uh, into the business of, of overhyping these. So you, after you left CVS uh, and before you joined Data Collective, you spent a lot of time coaching startups, advising startups, being an angel investor in startups on the health IT front, uh, companies like Nava Health, Lumiata, uh, Propeller Health's predecessor, Asmopolis, Psyapps, et cetera. Um, that have things in common about, you know, bringing data, different data sets together to make differences in, in the outcome of healthcare. What was the thing that, that most attracted you to this, you know, these companies? What, what was what you were looking for as you were saying yes to these things? The common thread, so it was always hypothesis driven, but I don't mean that I played a role in starting each company. It's that I would go down a hypothesis driven path of, well, how do we think about this and how would we do it this way? And sometimes it wouldn't exist. And then in other cases, it would exist. And what I think I learned relatively early was figuring out who is the CEO and what is that journey that they're on? And starting with strategy, do I really think this is worth doing? But then translating that to, is this a CEO in which I could somehow not only come on on a walk with them, but can I find a way to be significantly helpful? And along the way, I usually learn more than I give, but my heart is one to give more than I take. Um, So that was just this beautiful period of hypothesis-driven discovery, which success begets success in not the right language. It's that earning the right to work with amazing people different than yourself often leads you with the right to work with someone else. And so I just just kept uncovering really neat early companies um, where because of a couple of things that I'd done, I I had a way to help. Now, in the course of working with um, with some of these companies, not the companies mentioned, but other companies, did you have any experiences with companies, I mean, you must have, that failed, that didn't work out the way you expected, and were there any learnings you had from them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my biggest, the biggest emotional challenge in trying to otherwise do these things where you're, you're doing something, you know it's hard, and you're only doing it because you believe that there's a value in doing it at significant scale five or 10 years in the future. And the biggest emotional stress is when the company has either a lack of focus or a lack of execution to do, to do what you and that CEO from the first time you ever met knew should occur. And so I've definitely had that. I've definitely been in trust with an entrepreneur where there's a lack of focus or where there's a, an inability to get the sequence of execution right. And at the same time, it's almost always combined with um, 
a level of non-presumptuous that like I've got the perfect answer. So I would say with any CEO that I've worked with, be it um, just as a friend, as an advisor, one that I helped start something with, or now entirely as an investor, what's most important is that level of trust and that ability to be direct. And without, you know, giving too many caveats, the ability to say, here's what I think, and here's my level of confidence in thinking, but let's make no mistakes uh, in almost all of those situations. I'm not the CEO, uh, that man or that woman is. And so there's a respect of they've got to make the hard choices, but what I won't do is hold back in sharing, you know, my view towards the strategy or my view towards the execution or the commercialization or whatever is the question. So, so, so then today, I mean, it's an unbelievable time to be in like data and healthcare, huge amount of interest at every level. Within that whole opportunity space, what do you think is the greatest single opportunity or, or, or type of opportunity that you're excited about? And at the same time, what do you worry most about? What are people coming to you with where you're like, maybe not so much? So, you know, I've got to be clear that I joined an amazing venture capital fund that just continues my trajectory of finding a way to finagle my room, myself into rooms with people much more intelligent than myself. And these guys are, uh, this is a fund that's like a force of nature of applying compute to a couple of areas of industry and the future of humans, and including in computational biology. As long as it's not ambitious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yet, uh, we've been pretty skeptical for three or four years that in general, digital health is a place where ambitious early stage investors will be able to make a lot of progress or make much of a, a dent in the universe. So the thing that I'm most excited about is if I give myself a long enough time on the x-axis, let's say 15 years, I get to significant levels of confidence that the provision of care, that the systems that touch patients, um, and including kind of niches and systems that don't even exist today, if you give me 15 years, I have significant confidence that the provision of care will have to be rebuilt. And yet, I can't imagine rebuilding anything we either know of or we're going to do without doing it with a combination of compute, like all the best that we have around data and data science, but always kind of attenuated to the context of that moment, to the use case, uh, to the person that's sitting there trying to help that patient. This goes alongside a number of things that I deeply believe, like how we're going to turn health extenders into superheroes. It all fits together. So the thing I'm most excited about is just all the ways in which healthcare is dysfunctional, I do think if you're patient enough, most of it will be rebuilt. You asked a question, which was, let's see, the second part of your question was um, where I'm concerned. Yeah, like what, what do entrepreneurs come to you with? And, you're like, and you that, roll your eyes. Yeah, I mean, is it just like all the AI buzzwords? What is it? <laughs> so let's see. It's our job to filter and not take the meeting or not spend much time if we just don't think it's a good idea or it's in, you know, it's our job to, to separate wheat from chaff. I guess the harder one is we have a very large number of meetings where we think this is a really smart entrepreneur, this is a pretty interesting multidisciplinary team, but we're still gonna say no in the first meeting. Um, one is because we have real uh, thematic discipline. So we see a number of startups that we think, we think this will be a success, um, but we think it's gonna take five to eight years before you really know and you can see scale. And it's not that we're impatient, it's that we wanna be very patient about things we think scale tremendously. So um, 
there are a number of areas where I think you should be bullish on tech-enabled services, but that's not where we're going to be investors is there at, at the very early stage. Uh, the second is, I, I would say, you know, three times in the past month, I've looked at a founder in the eyes and I've said, I think you understand the problem. Um, you know, here's how I view on where you are in the solution or not. But I've looked at them and I've said, you're actually not ambitious enough. Like, play this out this way and this way, and you're going to be, as I think, kind of hugging the shores of incrementalism just to stay alive, taking a little enterprise contract and a proof of concept capability from some oligopolistic system or payer, and two or three years from now, you're going to be telling me, no, no, we, we finally don't have product market fit. Um, so I see a lack of ambition is kind of one of the so lack of ambition on this provision side. We do not see this lack of ambition on the biology side. I think that's really interesting because, you know, if I look I look at the arc of my own healthcare career, 30 years I've been I've been at this in one way or another, and I I take a big step back, you know, the big the big outcomes of what have happened is costs have continued to go up, care has not been fundamentally improved, and um, you know. A lot of the same old stuff. And while there's changes and there's incremental changes and the like, the big, big, big changes have really not happened yet, 30 years. So if you think about a, a 10-year, you know, venture fund or 12-year venture fund, you know, how do you reconcile investing in things that are, you know, boil the ocean in healthcare, which doesn't, you know, which is, has built tremendous antibodies to being boiled, Um with that philosophy you just espoused? Well, the first thing I have to be clear, because it's not necessarily egotistical, is we think there's many things that should be funded. And I will look at them and I will say, you just shouldn't be trying to raise from early stage exponentially ambitious, you know, return the size of the fund investors. And fortunately for them, I think there's a growing ecosystem of thoughtful investors who understand the long arc of healthcare and when I say incremental, that doesn't have to be a damning word. Incremental would be a damning word for an investment for us, but it doesn't mean there's not a company that should go on a journey to solve a problem to come alongside with this feature or with this capability. I don't know. That's like someone saying, "Well, you know, I, I totally wouldn't want, want, I totally wouldn't want to go out with her, but she'd be great for you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be suspicious of a friend who uh, <laughs> who said something like that. <laughs> So I'm not enamored with venture capital or being a venture capitalist. Um, but from what I can tell, the best venture capitalists are pretty clear and specific about whether it's a thesis or stage or the way that they add value. And so one could very rightly look at venture capital as a broader game and see a lot of lemmings-ish behavior. And I do as well. I see that. On the other hand, um, I actually see this wide cornucopia of perspectives and investing philosophies at different stages with different risk return or abilities to mitigate. And so often what I'm very quickly doing with the founders, I'm saying, listen, we are on this side of the spectrum of risk. We're on this side of the spectrum of looking for certain types of scale and having certain, you know, for us in particular, deep tech and deep compute defensibility. And so when I refer that founder to another venture capitalist. And I say, look, we're passing because of X, but I think it's interesting to you for Y. That's, that's a very genuine referral. And I've seen really interesting good companies get funded shortly after that. So it's, it's a position of non-presumption, a position of saying, well, we have to know who we are to, to find the right and, and support the right companies for us. 
Well, thanks, Scott. That is a great way to end, and I really appreciate uh, having you on the show today. Thank you for having me. Terrific stuff. We'll look forward to, to seeing how your, your new chapter uh, unfolds. So today's guest, Scott Barkley, was speaking to us today while we sit ensconced in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. David, what would you think of Scott's story? I think the I think it's particularly interesting to think about his background in this current age of CVS as it thinks about merging with Aetna. Yeah, I think there are a couple of really interesting components. I thought that his, um, you know, his sort of, you know, like he was described sort of, you know, growing up in the, in this town and how he sort of found his way into, you know, I don't know anyone who, of the reasons I heard for going to investment banking, caring about like value. Yeah, really. It was like, well, money, 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 money. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, what about the strippers? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've seen the movies, so it was. Like, so it was. It was anyway. But that's what he. That that's his yeah, story, and he's sticking. And he's sticking. To, oh, incredibly deliberate. And then his experience, you know, at, at CVS, and really trying to understand. Again, I think deliberate is the key word. Really trying to understand the systems and and trying to understand things. And um, there was a phrase he used where he says, you know, clear and specific. And I, I think that really seemed to sort of capture a lot of his approach, like very clear. And clear, specific, and deliberate. Yeah, very, very much so. Well, you can enjoy David's very clear and specific writing at Forbes. Or not so much. Um, And you can definitely enjoy um, uh, Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact.